In June of 2008, Jennifer Catchway's family was waiting at home to celebrate her 18th birthday. Jennifer never made it to that gathering in her honor, and she has not been seen since. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day three of 12 Days of Crimelines. That's 12 daily episodes as a thank you for your support all year. As this is a case of a missing and murdered Indigenous woman, we are not going to walk away from this without a history lesson. Jennifer Catchway was born on the Scownon First Nation Reserve and spent her early years there. Scownon is an Ojibwe word that means the turning point. By the mid-1800s, the tribe was being called the Waterhen or the Waterhen River Band due to the area they were in, but that was the name from the government. Scownon is the actual name. From 1871 until 1921, the British Crown and multiple First Nations signed 11 treaties that allowed the government access to First Nations land for everything from transportation to settlement to farming. The Scownon were among those who signed Treaty Number 2. These treaties are often referenced in discussions about First Nations in Canada because so much of the current policies go back to those treaties and whether they're being honored or not. According to the terms of Treaty Number 2 signed in 1871, $3 was given to each member of the nations who signed this treaty and an annual payment of $15 was promised per family of five. It would be adjusted up or down for the size of the family. So something that is being produced out of this treaty are pay lists of who was being paid this annual payment for access and use of the land. There is a pay list from 1879 that you can find on the Scownon First Nation website. And the Catchaway family is listed, though the spelling has changed over the years. And since 1950, a Catchaway has been chief more often than not. When Jennifer was still little, her family moved four hours south to Winnipeg, and then later an hour or so west of Winnipeg to Portage La Prairie, where she spent most of her childhood. Everyone says the same things about Jennifer. She was outgoing, funny, loved to be around people, and was always keeping up with whatever her family and friends were doing. In June of 2008, Jennifer was about to turn 18, and she worked at a restaurant in Portage La Prairie, near where her parents lived, Bernice and Wilfred. Turning 18 is a big milestone, so her family planned to grill steaks and celebrate on the evening of her birthday, June 19th. By all accounts, Jennifer was looking forward to this get-together. She had been at her parents' house earlier that week and left a note that read, Gone to see my cousin. Be back later. Love you. Put my ice cream in the fridge. I'll have it when I get back. This wasn't unusual as Jennifer was close to a number of extended family members and she was good about letting her parents know where she was going. On the day of her 18th birthday, she called her mom, Bernice, and told her she would be back in time for the party. 
So the family, particularly Bernice, got moving on putting things together for the celebration, and the family was out back grilling and wondering where Jennifer was. The first thought was, well, she just turned 18, and she probably got held up with her friends or some last-minute plans. Like I said, she was normally good about checking in and letting her parents know where she would be or if there had been a change in plans, but this was her 18th birthday, so they didn't immediately worry. But then they didn't hear from Jennifer the next day, and then they didn't hear from her for another day. Bernice had heard that Jennifer had been with her uncle and her cousin on her birthday. But then she realized no one had seen Jennifer since then, so she went to the police to report her missing. Bernice said that she was asked how old Jennifer was, and when she said she just turned 18, the officer told her to wait a week to report her missing. He said Jennifer was probably just out drinking. But Bernice pushed back, saying that she didn't think that was the issue, and she gave the information she had, including the names of the uncle and cousin Jennifer had last been seen with. But then Bernice later found out the police didn't do anything with this information for weeks after she reported Jennifer missing. Though they were the last people to be known to be with Jennifer, they were not contacted early on. Like we've seen in other cases, the family didn't wait on the police to get things started. They began searching immediately, calling and contacting everyone they knew, and traveling the routes that Jennifer may have taken between her parents' house and the places she had been seen. They were trying to pin down Jennifer's movements between when she left the note until that phone call home on her birthday, the last day her parents had heard from her. Timelines can become a little contradictory and blurry when you start bringing in witness statements, Witnesses who are trying to remember what they saw a few days ago and maybe not being entirely sure which day they saw what happen. But we do have a fixed point on the timeline. The police did eventually run Jennifer's phone records and they found that the call she made to her parents on the morning of her birthday was made from Grand Rapids, Manitoba. This is a good five to six hours north of Portage La Prairie. The RCMP later said that they could confirm that she was in Grand Rapids because they had photographs taken at a party, but her family was unsure why she would be up there. Now, based on witnesses, it appears Jennifer then left Grand Rapids around noon on the day of her birthday with her 38-year-old uncle by marriage, Charles Perantu, and her 28-year-old cousin, Sean Catchaway. They were heading home to Portage La Prairie. So this is all in line with Jennifer's plans to get home in time for her birthday dinner. So why didn't she make it? According to her uncle Charles, it's because she demanded to be let out of the truck as they were heading down Highway 6. This is the highway that runs south out of Grand Rapids. He said he left Jennifer near the turn to head towards Waterhen, which is, frankly, in the middle of nowhere. If Google Maps is to be believed, this road isn't even paved. 
And to get from that spot to the reserve where Jennifer did know people, it's over an hour drive. So it made no sense to get dropped off in the middle of a field and a dirt road over an hour from anyone she knew. But that was a story, and it gave the family an area to search. But nothing was recovered. Charles and Sean were both brought in for questioning a few weeks after Jennifer disappeared, but they were released without charges. If they gave any additional useful information, the RCMP has kept it guarded. There was a tip that came in that said Jennifer was seen at a party on the Dakota Teepee First Nation on the 20th, which is the day after her birthday. To get from Highway 6 to Dakota Teepee would take Jennifer almost right by her parents' house. So if this happened, why didn't she stop at home? In spite of this possible sighting, Grand Rapids, Manitoba remains the last confirmed place Jennifer was seen. Not a lot more has been released about the early investigation, but it definitely seems like Charles and Sean were their prime leads, but they went nowhere. Two months after Jennifer Catchaway disappeared, 24-year-old Amber McFarland also went missing. She also lived in Portage La Prairie, and she was last seen leaving a bar with her boyfriend. This boyfriend had a no-contact order against him due to a previous assault on Amber. So there was a history of violence in their relationship. The police could confirm that Amber was with her ex and another friend leaving that bar because of security footage. When Amber went missing, there was a massive response from the RCMP and the community, something Jennifer's case did not see. They had large numbers of people searching, a church was providing supplies for searchers, and there were ATVs and helicopters and boats all aiding in the search for Amber. Jennifer's family, by contrast, had gotten, she's probably out drunk. Bernice and Wilford Catchaway, though hurt at the disparity in the response, joined the search for Amber. They publicly said that Amber's family are beautiful people who were carrying the same pain they were. It wasn't their fault that the support didn't exist to find Jennifer, and whatever the Catchaways could do for the McFarlands, they wanted to do. The publicity surrounding Amber's disappearance did generate some more reporting on Jennifer's, since they were both young women from the same town going missing in such a short time period. But that media coverage is a small consolation when the police response was so different. And it's truly terrible that another woman had to go missing before another family got that kind of media coverage. In turn, the McFarlands have helped with the searches for Jennifer, and they participate in the Memorial March for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. That type of visibility of the movement is what pressures the police and the politicians to close the gap in the response between white victims and indigenous victims. And it's always amazing to me that the victims' families in their own grief time and time again find a way to show up for each other. The searches for both women, Amber and Jennifer, those organized by the police and those organized by the family, 
slowed as winter set in and the weather prevented the searches from continuing. They picked back up in the spring and summer and continued until the winter halted them again. And that's the way it's been for the last 14 years for both missing women. In October 2015, someone came forward with some information on Jennifer's disappearance, and it was given over to the RCMP. The details of this tip have not been released, but soon after, they searched the Dakota Teepee Reserve, so I assume it had to do with that. There was an issue with the search, though. Machinery that was brought in to dig had ended up knocking over some trees. The chief revoked the permission to search for a little while, but then they had a meeting, things were cleared up, and the search was allowed to continue. If any evidence was found, it has not been made public. And then in December of 2015, just days after Christmas, Charles Perantu, one of the last people to see Jennifer alive, was murdered. Any hope he could or would give more information was gone. In 2016, after they had been searching for eight years and Jennifer's father had done something like 50 to 100 interviews of his own, he felt he was closer than ever. From what the family had put together at that point, Duck Bay, Manitoba was a significant location. To get to Duck Bay, you would take the turnoff Highway 6, where Charles said he had left Jennifer. But then in 2020, a new tip came in. This was a very specific one that came in as a letter with an enclosed map of where to find Jennifer's body. And it was not at Duck Bay. At this point, the family had been disappointed with tips that sounded hopeful but turned out to be nothing. But they couldn't ignore them if there was any chance it could lead them to Jennifer. This map pointed to a spot north of Portage La Prairie. Though they've searched the area, so far this lead has not panned out. Jennifer's case is being treated as a homicide, and the same is true for Amber McFarland's case. Both cases have a $20,000 reward attached. If you have any information on either case, you can call the Manitoba Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS, T-I-P-S, or visit their website at manitobacrimestoppers.com. These points of contact will be in the show notes. <laughs> 